Today's reading is from Matthew 26, 69 through 75. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning and uh, welcome to the Leewood campus of uh, Christ Community. I'm Tom and uh, I have the delight of opening God's word uh, with you this morning and I serve on the teaching team with Christ Community and we hope you know how much we appreciate you coming to church and that you feel very welcome whether you've been here many times or this is your first uh, time this morning. So again, welcome in Jesus' name. Hope you feel loved and cared for here and if you're newer, I can always tell people don't be strangers, uh, come back, okay? Uh, March Madness is a ton of fun at least sometimes. Um, but it's a reminder, isn't it, that we all, we all fail. I mean, when you think about it, every team in the tournament, except one eventually, feels the sting of failure, don't they? That's just the way it works. And if you're a bracketologist, you fill out your bracket, you know failure, right? Of course you do. Do you know the odds of bracketology that you're going to get them all right? Have you, have you heard this? It's like, I'm not a math nerd, but this is amazing. The odds, I like math people, don't get me wrong, I'm just not one of them. Mathematically, your chances of getting the entire bracket right is this number. <laughs> now, that's a big number. Uh, it's called 1 in 9.2 quintillions for all you mathers. So when it comes to March Madness, <laughs> failure is inevitable. It just is. But that's not only true in March Madness, as fun as that is, it is true in all of our lives. It's a part of the human story. You may have faced the pain of a failed business that puts you in financial crisis and your future financial security in jeopardy. As a student, maybe you have faced the poor performance of a test that puts your college hopes on hold. And you may have found yourself in an agonizing wake of a failed friendship or a failed marriage. And you wonder, can you ever recover? Failure, it seems to me, can be very excruciatingly painful and perhaps some of the most devastation we feel in the human soul. The question is, why is failure so devastating to us? Well, one of the reasons I think that failure is so excruciatingly, excruciatingly painful is that it inevitably brings with us a heavy, heavy dose of soul-suffocating shame. And shame hangs on and hangs on and hangs on. Failure can make us question everything about us, our value, our competency, our intellect, and perhaps most difficult is our worthiness to be loved. Shame can also 
rob our joy in the present. And perhaps like nothing else, it can sabotage our hope for the future. Shame hangs on and on and on. One of the most devastating failures we often do not talk about is the failure of spiritual failure. That is, when we fail to live up to the beliefs we hold most dear and most precious, the consequences to us and others are often far-reaching. We've all encountered highly publicized accounts of Christian leaders or pastors whose moral failures make front-page news. And as tragic as that is, it is not just Christian leaders that fail. At one time or another, every follower of Jesus fails Jesus. And when we fail Jesus, we face disturbing doubts whether we can be fully forgiven again and whether deeper intimacy that our heart longs for with Christ is now even possible or if it is far beyond our grasp. How are we to understand this thing called spiritual failure? Is it fatal? Is it life's ultimate dead end? Or can it be a new beginning? In our passage of Scripture this morning, we are going to get one of the most intense and illuminating looks into spiritual failure in all the Bible. In the excruciating crucible of failure, we are going to discover a life hope-giving truth, and that is this. Failure is inevitable, but it is not fatal. If you brought a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, which is the first book in the New Testament. And we have been walking through the book of Matthew as a church family. We are now in Matthew chapter 26. And Matthew chapter 26 features the fast-moving events of the night before Jesus' crucifixion. Here in chapter 26, the gospel writer Matthew, with his incredible literary skill, shines a bright, illuminating light on Peter's shocking failure. But it is in Peter's failure we uncover three nuggets of wisdom for all who desire to follow Jesus. These three nuggets of wisdom we are going to mine this morning are as follows. First, good intentions are not enough. Good intentions are not enough. But secondly, fear often leads to failure. Fear often leads to failure. And then we're going to uncover the last nugget of wisdom, that failure is not the last word. So good intentions are not enough. Fear often leads to failure, and failure is not the last word. Good intentions are not enough. If there was ever a follower of Jesus, if you studied the New Testament at all, who had the best intentions, it was Peter. I mean, he is the poster boy for that. The gospel writers present Peter as one of Jesus' most devoted, loyal, courageous followers, bar none. Peter had a heart of gold. But even hearts of gold have clay feet. The problem was that Peter did not see his clay feet. 
Now, let's recall as we enter back into the story in the first century that Jesus and his disciples, or followers, have just finished the Passover meal. As we looked at last week, they make their way through the Kidron Valley up a rather steep incline to the Mount of Olives. It's a cool night air. They're involved with climbing and there's physical exertion. They're breathing heavily. And Jesus intercepts the silence as they go to the Mount of Olives and he stuns his disciples by saying to them, y'all, maybe he didn't say it just like that, but y'all, you're going to abandon me. And Peter, as he's trying to get his breath as he's climbing this big, big hill, blurts out in verse 13. These other guys, I imagine him sort of pointing here, are going to abandon you, but not me. Uh-uh. And Jesus looks at Peter most likely and says, before this very night is over, Peter, that is, before a rooster announces the arrival of morning, and that happens in Jerusalem, let me tell you, early morning, four or five in the morning. The ultimate nature's alarm clock. You're going to deny me. Of course, Peter <laughs> will have none of that nonsense. And he says to Jesus, Ha! Huh, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. What he's saying is, Jesus, I'll be there for you. Come hell or high water, I'm right by your side. No matter what. Then all the other well-intentioned disciples chime in. Yeah, we're on it. We're on it. We got your back. In the dark of the night, Jesus is arrested. And well-intentioned disciples, their good intentions are not enough to stave off their imminent failure. The text, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four gospel writers tell the disciples skedaddle. They flee into the shadows. And Jesus is hauled before Caiaphas, the high priest. It's a hastily gathered kangaroo religious court. That's what it is. And Jesus is falsely accused. He spit on, he slapped, mocked. And the question underlying the text Matthew wants us to ask is, where is Peter? Where's Peter? Well, Matthew tells us that Peter is keeping a distance from Jesus. And the other gospel writer, John, tells us that, uh, most likely it's himself, that another disciple is actually with Peter who has access because of influence and a relationship to the high priest's courtyard. So Peter's entering the courtyard of the high priest, right outside of where the kangaroo court is taking place. Now, don't you believe that Peter still has good intentions? Peter is going to make good on the promise to Jesus, isn't he? Let's remember the gospel writer John says that when Jesus is arrested, Peter's the only one that acts. He draws his sword and cuts the guy's ear off. He missed his neck. He was a fisherman. I don't believe Peter ever imagined as he sat by that fire 
That is, good-hearted intentions would not be enough to prevent, prevent a massive failure that awaited him right around the corner. Yet in the relentless grip of paralyzing fear, Peter's good intentions will evaporate poof, into the cold, dark night. Peter's known throughout all the gospel accounts for three years as the guy with the bold courage. He's got it. And he's going to quickly cave in to unimaginable cowardice. And in here we find a very important lesson. Following Jesus, Peter needed more than good intentions. And so did you and I. Good intentions, we all have them, right? <laughs> when you stop to think about it, who has bad intentions? Right? Each one of us can justify our actions or inactions or motives in the most favorable light imagine. I am good at that. I suspect you are too. In our cultural context, we often hear good intentions, right? Like, but they are so sincere. Or they mean so well. We have great profound wisdom across the landscape of time with the maxim, what? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Now, while sincerity and good intentions are clearly admirable, I'm all for it. When it comes to our spiritual lives and discipleship, they are not enough. The truth facing us in this text is even hearts of gold need disciplined hands and feet to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is not ultimately about trying harder, but training better with Jesus. Peter heard these words that Jesus gave his disciples through this path. Matthew records it in Matthew chapter 11, the great invitation of training with Jesus and learning from him. In Matthew 11, 20 through 30, we hear these very, very important words of Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is the life God has for you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Jesus' great invitation, Jesus invites Peter and all who would follow him to take his yoke of apprenticeship and learn from him. In submission and obedience, you and I are invited into this same journey. To grow in intimacy with Jesus, we must become his apprentice. And we must learn to live our lives like Jesus would if he were me or us. And the Apostle Paul echoes the truths of Peter's life. Paul reminds us that right intentions to follow Jesus must translate into a rigorous life of discipline empowered by the Holy Spirit. He writes to Timothy, who was a pastor of a local church in Ephesus, and notice Paul says right off the blocks with the strongest imperative in the original language, discipline yourself for the end of godliness or Christlikeness. The Greek word that Paul uses here in 1 Timothy for discipline is a word that we get our English from, which is gymnasium. That's your workout place, the gym. And what we understand is that spiritual formation and spiritual fitness is like physical training and physical fitness. See, no one just goes out and runs a marathon on a whim. You know that, I know that. I run, but I'm not, I'm not training for a marathon. I mean, if I went out and tried to run 26 miles, I probably wouldn't be up here tomorrow. Because you don't just run a marathon because you want to try to do it. 
You have to train to do it. And that's true of following Jesus. Discipleship is not just trying, it's training. And when it comes to following Jesus, training matters. The Bible teaches we are whole integrated beings, body, soul, and spirit, and a lifestyle of spiritual disciplines embraces the regular habits we build into, yes, our busy schedules. (laughs) Habits like solitude, study, fasting, prayer, and service. These spiritual practices Jesus modeled for us. He invites us to embrace his practices, not just his precepts. And in his practices, we experience deeper intimacy with Jesus. And it trains us for the moments when spiritual failure looks us square in the eye. Our Lenten devotional is built around these practices of training. It's a wonderful Lenten devotional called The King's Triumph. I hope you've picked up a copy and are following along. But it's not just during the season of Lent when we embrace the practices of Jesus as a disciple. It is a 365, 24-7 life. These spiritual practices Jesus modeled for us transform us. And at Christ's community, we will not simply tell you to try harder to follow Jesus. Because if we do, that sets you up for failure. Rather, we will come alongside you to assist you in training better with Jesus. How are you embracing Jesus' life-transforming practices? If you are a follower of Jesus here this morning. Those spiritual disciplines that build spiritual formation into your life. Christ community, we often call them the five smooth stones. There are more, but five core ones that Jesus modeled and invites us to live as we follow him in his yoke of apprenticeship. Solitude, study, prayer, fasting, and service are foundational. While we all fail at times, we do. The more we are formed in Christ's likeness, the less we will fail him. And others in our home, our children, our spouse, our friends, at school, and the work we do, those people we are called to love and serve. So let me ask you a really important question. Are you trying to follow Jesus? Or are you training to follow Jesus? How you and I answer that question sets the trajectory of failure or transformation. pathway from believing in Jesus to obeying Jesus is paved with spiritual discipline. Are you relying on your good intentions? Or are you being intentional about your spiritual growth? There is a vast difference. Peter's journey of faith reminds us first that when following Jesus gets tough, and it will, When fear confronts us, it will. When temptation entices us, it will. Good intentions won't cut it. But the second truth that comes out of this story, loud and clear, is that fear often leads to failure, doesn't it? In verse 69, Matthew describes what happens next, and it is is humorous, but incredibly enlightening. There is this curious and inquisitive servant girl who suddenly shows up by Peter at the fire. And in that context, the servant girl is the lowest caste 
of the society. And here you do this contrast, Matthew, the high priest who's the who's who and the servant girl who's the who's that, right together. And the servant girl, with an accusatory tone, at least I imagine a pointing finger, says to Jesus, very emphatic, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. And at that moment, everybody, every eye in the courtyard looked at Peter, and you could have heard a pin drop. Peter is feeling more heat than just the fire. <laughs> he wants to avoid a bull-faced lie, so what do you do when you're getting in a corner? He tries to sort of insinuate ignorance first. He says, I don't know what you mean. Peter moves away from her toward the edge of the courtyard. And once you know it, <laughs> he can move, but he can't hide. Now another servant girl confronts him in a more adamant tone. The text is very emphatic. This man, this guy here, everybody, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. The gospel writer John helps us here. He makes the point that this servant girl was a relative of the guy whose ear Peter cut off earlier that night. So word had spread quickly. But not as quickly as Peter is cornered in the courtyard. Peter is feeling the heat big time, big time. You can feel it. So Peter, as the fear thermometer is rising, Peter takes an oath. Like we would do, I swear on a stack of Bibles in a courtyard or in a court or something, right? It's we're to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God. That's where he is. And in doing that, Peter spews out a bold-faced lie. I do not know the man. And Peter's lie buys him some time, as lies do, but not much. Then there's these bystanders that come around him, and they hold their own kangaroo court. Hear the irony? They accuse Peter right away. It's like, here's exhibit number one, everybody. Here he is. Verse 73. They indict Peter in this little kangaroo court of their own. After a little while, all the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly, you are too one of them, for your accent betrays you. Now, if you've been a part of our series in Matthew, you know Matthew just loves irony. It's just dripping through his brilliant literature. And irony greets us here again and again and again. <laughs> Peter can say words of deception, but the very way he says these words of deception reveal his deception. Right? It's like someone who you hear from Britain. You know their, their English is perfect English. Right? They're different. You know, they can't hide it, right? American English, British English is different. <laughs> so what's happening here is that everybody knows Peter can't hide his northern Galilean accent. So you have this language of Nazareth and Galilee to the southern Jerusalemites, right? Y'all is a y'all. He knows where y'all's from. And the idea here is that you should chuckle a bit. It's sad, but Peter's hands are in the cookie jar. There's chocolate all over his face. <laughs> Crumbs everywhere, and he's going, what cookies? <laughs> what cookies? He is ambushed by paralyzing fear. He's cornered by the plain truth. He makes an oath and a curse. And he says, once again, I do not know the man. Period, period, period. And as soon as Peter's bold-faced lie passes across his lips, what happens? A rooster crows. Do you think God is in charge of every atom of the universe and every creature and every root? A rooster. Is that amazing in this story? Waking up the morning. 
The gospel writer Luke in chapter 22 says something really important here. Peter is moved out as far as he can of the courtyard, and Jesus, after being beaten and abused, is right at the entrance. And their eyes meet. Kids, you've had that look from your parents, haven't you? <laughs> parents, you've uh, given that look to your child. I remember my mom, she didn't have to say a word. She just gave me that. Hmm. I don't think Peter had ever had Jesus look like him like that. Ever before. And it was just that look, not a word, that melts Peter. And he hears the words in his mind before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. At that moment, in that nanosecond moment, I am convinced that Peter thought his life was over. Because when we experience massive failure in our life, we believe it's all over. If you've faced massive failure, you know what Peter is feeling right here. And hearing that rooster crow, I can't prove this, but I will bet a lot on it. When grief hit him, there was this flashback of three years with Jesus. Grief does that. I can imagine that in an instant, Peter remembered when he first met Jesus. When Jesus invited him to be his follower, the most celebrated rabbi of the day. Jesus' brilliant teaching he heard up front, all the miracles, walking on the water with Jesus, being with Jesus on that mountain when he got a glimpse of Jesus' divinity like no other human being on earth. And remember, Jesus gave Peter a new name. When he met Peter and invited him into his apprenticeship, he changed his name. Peter's parents named him Simon. What did Jesus name him? Peter. The word means rock. And Peter was a rock. I kind of like to call him Rocky. Not Balboa, but Rocky. And right now, Peter must have thought, some rock I am smashed into pebbles of shameful cowardice. He denied his best friend and rabbinical, rabbinical leader, unthinkable in that culture. The lowest form of amoebas, culturally, the lowest, most egregious vice of that first century Jewish culture was to be disloyal to a friend. Think of the worst sin you could ever do to anyone. This is where Peter is, let alone Jesus. No wonder the thundering reality of what he had done hit him. There is a torrent of tears that pour out. Matthew employs words he cannot grab in language the immensity of what Peter is feeling, his sorrow. He just simply uses two words in the Greek text. He weeps bitter, bitterly. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, says it really well. He says, Peter went out and he cried and he cried and he cried. The idea is he could not cry anymore. He was so emotionally exhausted and trembling. It's as if his life was over. Do you ever cry like that? See, fear, we have it. We all have it. But sometimes it has us. 
Do you ever fear that somehow you could lose everything or everyone you love? I do. And I believe fear is one of the most formidable obstacles in you and me following Jesus fully. So let me ask you, what fears are keeping you from following Jesus closely? What fears are keeping Jesus at a distance in your life? What fears are leading you to deny Jesus, not in just some moment of confrontation, but in your daily conversations and daily priorities? Is the fear of disapproval and rejection from others holding you back from following Jesus fully with your classmates at school? With your colleagues at work, family members, is there a potential loss of career, income, or a close friend just because you love Jesus? Maybe you fear that if you follow Jesus fully, he won't come through for you. And maybe you fear if you follow Jesus fully, he'll ask you to give up something or someone you love. These fears are real, and they keep Jesus at a distance. And what we learn from Peter's story is when we keep Jesus at a distance, failure is inevitable rather than walking with him in his yoke of apprenticeship. Moment by moment, step by step. This text teaches us three profound truths. Good intentions are not enough. Not enough. The fears we face often lead us to failure but the good news is that failure, third, is not the last word. Peter's bitter tears and regret are agonizing, but they're not the end of the story. The New Testament describes a transformed Peter, bold and unwavering in his commitment to Jesus. A long line of tradition tells us, it's a very strong tradition, that Peter was martyred for his love for Jesus and was asked to be crucified upside down in honor of his Savior. So what happened to Peter after that debacle in the courtyard? The writer John, the gospel writer John tells us, after Jesus' bodily resurrection on an Easter morning, Jesus goes to Galilee and Peter and some of his buddies are already headed back there. They're fishing. That's part of what they own, a group fishing fleet. They're out fishing at night, which happened in that context, and they don't get anything. And there's a stranger... <laughs> On the shore, hey, put it on the other side, the net. They do it, and you know the story, most of you. It's like there's so many fish they can't handle them. John, in fact, counts them. He's so overwhelmed by the catch. Peter knows this is no stranger, but Jesus himself, he jumps in the water, heads to the shore. And Jesus invites Peter and his disciples to a breakfast he had prepared for them. After breakfast, Jesus looks Peter in the eye. He addresses him by his family name, Simon, and asks him basically the same three questions three times. It's the same number of times Peter denied Jesus. Don't miss that. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Do you really love me? After asking Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Jesus ends the conversation with, Two words, three questions, and one imperative. Follow me. Follow me. See, in forgiving and restoring Peter, Jesus points to the two foundational essentials of discipleship for you and me, wherever you are in your spiritual life. First, discipleship involves the reordering of your heart loves. When we become an apprentice of Jesus, we learn to love differently. We love differently. We don't just believe differently. 
What we truly love changes. What do you truly love? Secondly, discipleship involves a new lifestyle of submission and obedience to Jesus. If you and I truly want to follow fully Jesus, Jesus says, okay, you're in. Great. Love what I love and do what I do. Love what I love and do what I do. That's the formula. And if you are a Christian here this morning, you have been given the supernatural resources of Jesus Christ himself, the Holy Spirit's empowerment, and a local church community to help you day by day to love well and live well for the glory of God. This year, this month, or even this week, you may have failed Jesus big time. All followers of Jesus failed Jesus one time or another. But we must grasp with mind and heart this morning that failure is not the last word. The good news of the gospel is. On his way to the cross, Jesus faced betrayal, abandonment, and denial. And Jesus turns it into salvation for the world for you and me. On the cross, Jesus becomes the atoning sacrifice for your sin and mine. It's nothing we can earn. It's a gift we receive in repentance and faith. The good news is Jesus was denied so that you and I never have to be denied. Jesus paid it all. And he invites us to embrace this gift of grace. And out of that grace, a grateful heart becomes his apprentice who follows him and lives the life we were created to live. Not only now, but through all eternity. In spite of his good intentions, Peter failed Jesus. And so do we. But failure is not fatal. Jesus simply looks at each one of us and graciously says, follow me. Follow me. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed this morning, I don't know where you are. I don't know your past. One of the greatest lies is that we think that we've been so bad or done something so bad or failed so bad that Jesus couldn't love us or use us. First is to understand that the only thing that's fatal is an unwillingness to place your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you've never done that, may you do that in the quietness of your heart this morning and embrace the cross. For those of you who say, I have trusted Christ as my Savior, are you fully following Jesus? Maybe it's time to take his yoke and learn from him. Heavenly Father, thank you for the story of Peter's failure. It's hard to read, but we all can relate to it. Thank you that in your grace and in your mercy, our failure is not fatal. It's not the end, but it can be a new beginning of a new day and a new life for us. In Jesus' name.